Okay, friends, Greg Kokel, and I'm the host, and the show is this show, and this is it, and it is. <laughs> Sounds like a Monty Python routine, doesn't it? Stand to Reason is the show. Just a reminder that uh, we're still taking registrations for Reality in Minneapolis, November 10th and 11th. Just go to realityapologetics.com. I mentioned a couple days ago that uh, we had over 2,500 signed up. I'm sure we're, we've got a lot more since then. And the last week, it seems to, last couple of weeks, it really explodes. Please, if you're in the area, don't miss this event. It's really fabulous. And uh, also wanted to remind you, John Noyes will be speaking at Heart of the Canyons Church in Newhall, California. That'll be Wednesday, November 1 at 7 p.m. And I will also be at another place thinking about Faith Apologetics Conference in Bothell, B-O-T-H-E-L-L, Washington. That's up north of Seattle by Everwet. That's what I call it. It's actually Everett. But it's always wet up there. And that's Friday, Saturday, November. Make that Friday through Sunday, November 3rd through 5th. Okay. Now, I don't usually do this, but I just want to add something. Because just five minutes ago, I was having a really wonderful conversation with Dan, um, and uh, we differed on a few things, but we were just kind of sorting things out to see where I stood on on things that had to do with um, creation and uh, old earth, young earth, whatever. And this is why—what I'm about to tell you is why I want you to listen to hashtag SDRask. Because after we are done, Amy said, well, what about this? And then she offered this thought, and I'm thinking, no, duh, why didn't I think of that, write that, and say it? It would have been useful. And uh, it's something to think about, right? And uh, I didn't think about it. I did afterwards. So the nice thing about I mean, Amy did afterwards, and now I got it. So I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute, but I just want to make the point that that doesn't happen on hashtag SGRask. Because when I don't say what I should say on that show, Amy says it. Right there on the air. <laughs> okay. And one of the last things that Dan mentioned is so, and it was like, um, so you think that God created something in the beginning, and then there was a gap, and then he created some more, and then there was a gap, and then he created more, and then there was a gap. Where on his take, God created everything in the beginning. And that's, and my response was, well, that kind of depends on what you understand the beginning to entail given that that chapter is talking about the beginning, if it's a short period of time, a solar day week, as it were, or whether it's a longer period of time. Okay, so that's the way I left it. But Amy made the observation that even a young earth creationist believes that God created, and then there's a gap, and then he created, and then there's a gap, and then he created, and then there's a gap. Okay, now in this case, the, the gap is just kind of nighttime. So it's morning and evening, God's working, and then the day's over, and then the next day, morning and evening. So the gap is just, you know, nighttime gap or something like that. But everybody believes in gaps in that sense. The question, of course, is how are we to understand those gaps or the entire genre or nature of the communication of Genesis 1? I'm not a day-age guy or gap theory guy, strictly speaking. That really refers to something that has to do with Genesis, the diff- the the alleged space between Genesis 1-1 and verse 2. Um, but at, we, in the sense that there is a creative activity, then a pause, if you want to call that a gap, then we all believe in that. 
the question is, what is the nature of those pauses, and how much time are we talking about, and how are we to understand Genesis 1 as a as revelation, and uh, and what kind of genre or form is it in? So I'm not going to pursue that any further, but I did want to mention to Amy, I'm sorry, I mentioned to you what Amy said, that everyone believes there has been a pause or a gap of some sort. All right, with that in mind, I have no further comments to offer as an opening commentary. I've got callers that have been waiting for a while, so let's uh, go to Andy in Lubbock, Texas. I'm sorry about that. Lubbock, Texas. i got to say yeah, it like right. a Texan, Andy. Texas, man. Yeah. Well, I can't say it like a Texan because I'm not originally from these parts. Okay. I'm from the Northeast. So I, oh, anyway, well, you don't sound like that. Lubbock. You don't sound like that either. That's John Noyes. You know, go park your car in the yard. You know, that's the Northeast. I'm from New Jersey. I, for oh. some reason, I don't speak like I'm from Jersey. Oh, well, good so. for you. And and uh, <laughs> that's Frank Turk is from Jersey, you know. You that wanna, is correct. Hey, you want a piece that of me? Correct. You know, that's the guy. I've noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good to talk well, to you, Andy, formerly from Jersey. That's right. Well, um, I, I have, I'm going to be... Um, bringing up a question that I actually sent in to you, but I am not demonstrating the good virtue of Christian patience. I've been <laughs> So I decided I'm going to call him. And then Amy laughed because she said, you're like third on the list for the next question. Oh, you just ran out of steam there. Okay, no, I'm glad you did. And by the way, just for the record, anybody who who calls in on a question they they called in on earlier and left for the open mic calls, be sure to mention to Amy so she can cross it off the list so I don't inadvertently answer it twice. Because who knows, I may not give the same answer. So, well, she must have uh, detected my New Jersey accent in the thing and said, I, I recognize your voice. But oh, anyway. oh, okay. Got it. Okay. Well, on, on April 21st uh, podcast, you had a very thoughtful response concerning Christian musicians and YouTubers deconstructing, mm -hmm. and if they were uh, ever truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And you gave a really good answer. I appreciate it. You should, this should, scripture is clear that real Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Then you noted that some apostates like Michael Shermer claim they were real Christians. Mm -hmm. So in spite of their, test, their sincerity, it seems to me that those who apostatize and become naturalists, like Michael Shermer, have a worldview that confirms they were never real Christians, contrary to their claims. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, their worldview says that no one is a real Christian, for being a real Christian according to the Scriptures means being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't exist— on their view, no one can be a real Christian. Therefore, Michael Shermer, contrary to his compelling atheist testimony, cannot claim he was a real Christian. Well, so his claim and his worldview are self-refuting. Yeah, I'm not—you're going to—you moved a little fast for me. Uh, so before you go back to that, though, let me just um, cash out a part of it, and then you can clarify for me what I might have misunderstood. It's the part about self-refuting, I'm not sure— um, okay. is the case, is uh, clear to me. But um, now, there are Christians who disagree with the assessment that you just gave and I gave regarding um, what it means to be a real Christian. And the way that I would put it, as I, I wouldn't just say just have the Holy Spirit, I would say a Christian is one who is regenerated. Now, right. that is, right. a, sp that is a, a Holy Spirit function, obviously, and regeneration entails 
receiving the Holy Spirit, indwelling in us, we're the temple of the Spirit, and it entails a number of other things. And my conviction is that genuine regeneration is irreversible, okay? Right. It's irreversible. So, um, so now others will say, well, Bill Craig, for example, he would take a totally different view. He'd say it's not irreversible. You could be a real Christian at one point in time and then apostatize and lose your faith, deny your faith, and then become a non-Christian, okay? So there is a split field here on, on this particular issue, all right? right. Um, so I would, I would say then, in light of my theology, and it sounds like in light of your theology too, that if, um, if, if regeneration is an irreversible miracle that changes the nature of a human being, from a a spiritually dead individual into a reborn individual, and all things have become new, and all those verses that pertain to that, then you cannot have someone who apostatizes in the sense that others might suggest. You can have people that seem like Christians, and then mm-hmm. they quit, and they go their own way, like Demas did. You know, Demas, having loved the present world, deserted me. That's Paul and Gal, Second, Second Timothy four. I mean, what a way to end your life, you know? There goes Demas; yeah. he's on his way yeah. out. So I think my, my understanding of Pauline theology is, if he's saying Demas has apostatized, what he means is Demas has joined the world that he always was a part of, but okay. you know, he hung around whatever. <clears throat> all right. So that would be my 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 general take on on that issue. Michael Shermer was never a real Christian. And uh, uh, John says they went out from us to show that they were not actually with us. And so this is what I call, I mean, my characterization of this doctrine, I used to call it um, uh, once saved, always saved, or eternal security. But I I actually prefer the Reformed characterization, perseverance of the saints. That is, if if you are genuinely regenerated, you're a real Christian, you will persevere, even through ups and downs and whatever, but ultimately you'll persevere, okay? So that's that's my take. You, you're not going to lose your salvation if you're genuinely regenerated. Genuine saints are going to persevere. Now, I'm just wondering about your Michael Shermer comment, though, because uh, were you saying that, well, if he's an atheist now, then he doesn't believe that there was a Holy Spirit, and so all he could be meaning when he said he used to be a Christian, is that he was part of that belief system, but he never really—he realizes now he never really had the Holy Spirit, because there is no such thing. He's an atheist. Right. Now, the the thing is, he will—and I like him. I mean, he, I appreciate him, but he— um, He is a likable guy, he, I have to admit, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah, I sat, I sat next to him for three hours in a in a radio booth, you know, having a debate with him once. Uh, but he's all right. But he's 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 also troublesome in my view on a number of different ways. But go ahead, I'm I right. I diverge. Well, well, he he seems to say that he was a real Christian, and versus saying that he just thought he was. And on his view, um, nobody could be a Christian that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So Christianity is more of a cultural thing than a real converted, spiritually converted. Um, that's right, because he denies the reality of God and the Holy Spirit, and spirit conversion, if you mean regeneration. 
you can have, in a human perspective, a conversion where a person has one point of view and then adopts another point of view. It could be a Muslim who converts to Christianity in his view, and he said they're both equally wrong because there is no God in either case. But it is a conversion from one way of thinking to another. Now, you you made a very strong statement, which I found compelling, this guy, idea of rebirth. We have new life. And then you suggested this idea of if you um, lose your salvation, do you experience new death? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a, a rather scary thought. What would someone like an Arminian say about that? Would well, they say that you no longer have new life, or is it how would they characterize it? Well, uh, I, um, thanks for remembering my words. I don't recall that, but th- that is kind of clever. I agree. But I, I th- what I think what I meant by that is if you are Arminian, this is mm-hmm. what you'd have to hold. You went from yeah. spiritual death to spiritual life to spiritual death again. Again, okay. I'm, 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 right. I, I'm not an Arminian, you know, so I, I right, don't know right. how a, a, a thoughtful Arminian would characterize it. But I think that they'd have to say, uh, you are a, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. But if you apostatize, then you lose the Holy Spirit. But of course, it's the Spirit that gives you the new life. Right. And therefore, it would be fair to say that you now are in a state of spiritual death which would be, right. you, I could call it a new death. I guess I did call it that, but I, I think I was being coy with words to try right. to show how um, kind of absurd that sounds. Yeah. I, I think we're safer saying it, it, that person never was a Christian at all. You know, in the parable of the sower, you see these three types of soil that, you know, right. and two of them— and you actually got four, but the last one is clearly a productive Christian. But the the middle two seem to be people who manifest some spiritual life, but for some reason, they don't bear fruit. Now, you might want to mm-hmm. say, okay, for the second one, no root, and they die off when they get persecuted. The third one, they're there, but the cares of the world choke them out so they're not fruitful. So one might make a case that that's a genuine Christian who is not bearing fruit because of these other problems. And I think there's a mixed bag in that. I don't I, I don't know what to say about that. I certainly think it's a possibility. But uh, so, but I, I, I think that if you apostatize, like you go from a person who's part of a Christian enterprise, like Michael Shermer was, and then you yeah. say, I am no longer a Christian, okay, well then um, I don't, Armenian would have to say, if he was born again, then he got unborn again. He had a spiritual death. I, I don't know how else you could put it. Yeah. But they might well, also yeah, say, that, like I did, that, that maybe he wasn't a Christian to begin with. I, that's certainly an option for Armenians. Right. And there are a lot of Armenians that I appreciate, like William Lane Craig. And I'm still, you know, I, there's people I respect on both sides, so sometimes I don't know what to think about it. I know where I lean, and I, you know, I, I'm more reformed in that respect. Yeah. So, well, anyway. here, just one thought, um, and then we'll move on. But one thought: when I talk uh, to folks about about reform, uh, sovereign grace, let's just put it that way, sovereign right. grace. Okay, and of course, on that view. Uh, you have perseverance of the saints. That's built into that view, sovereign grace. Right. Um, so um, when people start wondering whether it's accurate, I think they start asking the wrong questions. 
and almost universally, okay, when I talk to people about this, and colleagues even, most of my colleagues are not reformed, all right? And uh, okay. they say, well, how could you believe this? How, what do you, how do you justify evangelism? Okay, why would God, you know, not want everybody to be saved? Why would this and why would that? And and now I've learned when this comes up to say you're asking the wrong questions. Really, mm-hmm. what's the right questions? The right questions are what does the Bible teach? <laughs> That's the right question. So you have to form your doctrine based on the teaching of Scripture. Now I'm not saying that people like Bill Craig or Paul Copan or a host of others, J.P. Moreland, can't make a scriptural case. I'm not saying that, but most of the uh-huh. people that I talk to start in the wrong place. And um, instead of trying to really make clear in their own mind, here's what Scripture teaches. If it teaches sovereign grace, then we have to answer those other what about questions in light of the teaching of sovereign grace. And I have some what about questions, like why are the saved people called the elect if they're mm-hmm. not elected, if they elect themselves? Why are they calling the chosen if they choose themselves? This makes no sense out of either word. So, you oh, know, good. and to me, that goes back to the biblical case. The Bible calls believers chosen. Who mm-hmm. chose them? Well, the Arminian has to say they chose themselves. Who elected them? They elected themselves. Well, this. Why use the word chosen and elect when it, those words don't mean that anymore? Anyway, that's the kind of questions that I think we have to answer w- w- based on a solid biblical exegesis before we can start solving other questions that depend on prior answers, like what does the Bible teach, before we can make sense of them. Well, you give me something to thought, thought about. Can, can you point me in, in one direction regarding something else? You, you just gave uh, two really good broadcast about decision-making and, and God's will. Yeah. And you said you said that this kind of recent view of you know, God leading and, and such right. is about 150 years old. Yeah. Is there a resource that yeah. I can look uh, into? I got that statement from none other than, um, let's see, Pursuit of God. Who wrote that? Pursuit of God. Here we go. He's famous. He just died. Reform guy. Um, what was that? Holy... Sproul? Uh, no, 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 oh. no. Before Sproul, he died before Sproul did. But the same oh, same oh. group. Now, come on, it's a... he wrote a classic. See, this is where my my dad used to call it old timers' disease. I can't think of these simple <laughs> things. Okay, the uh, the knowledge of the holy. No, that's Tozier. Uh, this is um, uh, 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 he wrote uh, he wrote a book on uh, Reformed theology called uh, The Pursuit of Godliness. Amy's looking that up. There you go. Pursuit of Godliness. Okay. He also wrote a book called Hot Tub Religion, and this is the book that has that citation in it, Hot Tub Religion. It's kind of a popular book. It's written 20 years ago. It's probably not even sold anymore, but J.I. Packer. Oh, man. Oh, okay. Okay. God forgive me. And Jim, Jim Packer, forgive me, wherever you are. Okay. You know, I, it's just it's one of those things. Well, what did he? What did? What did? Now, what is the book he wrote about? Knowing God. Yeah, that was it. Okay, I kept getting That's all these, right. these yeah. titles. So he wrote right. the classic Knowing God, but Packer was the one who made this observation. Okay, huh, interesting. That okay. Uh, and and this is uh, one thing that I that I drew on, and I think in that material where I've written about it, 
in my footnotes I have the the reference, but I do know that the book is called Hot Tub Religion. And part of the thing, it's kind of an odd title for a guy like J.I. Packer, because what's he doing writing a hot tub religion book? Because he, he writes more serious-sounding stuff. And yeah. by, incidentally, I just mentioned one that's worth the read, and it's called The Pursuit of Godliness, and it's about the Puritans. But he has a great section in there that describes reform theology. And it's really good. And what he says there is there aren't five points to Calvinism. There's only one. God saves sinners. And all the rest of the sub-points, of the so-called five points, are all subsumed under this one statement, God saves <clears throat> sinners. So I recommend both of them to you. And okay. uh, the key thing, though, is with regards to decision-making and the will of God, is not whether how long it's been practiced. Um, and you're going to you're going to find mystics you know it's somewhere along the line that are going to have adopted some of these principles that we see in play across the board now but what you don't see is you 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 what you don't see in the history of christianity is this this presumption that every christian um as a birthright has the uh, the ability and ought to be able to have conversational relationship with god that everybody can talk two-way, and I mean two-way, not we talk to God, then He talks to us through His Word, but rather that we can expect to get personal revelations from God. And that's what is a new thing, and this has not been part of the history of Christianity. A quest—okay, thank you, Amy's just straightening me out again—A Quest for Godliness is the title of that book by Packer on the okay. Puritans, and it's got a great section in there on Reformed theology. So there you have it. Okay, Andy? Well, thank you very much for your time, and have a blessed uh, evening. Yeah, you too. Great talking to you. Okay, let's go to break, folks, and uh, I'll be back in just a moment. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. So uh, this is the new normal, old-timer's disease, right? And I just I can't think of things, and so i got to do like three degrees of 
separation, you know, or four, or whatever it is. Okay, he's the guy that was in the book that the other guy wrote that in it, and then here's the name of that. That I can remember, and then you got to trot through to find J.I. Packer, all that work for that. All right. But his book, Knowing God, is a classic. And I was just listening to Tim Challies the other day in his interview with the Alisa Childers, and Tim Challies said, uh, three books that every Christian ought to read, that's one of them. Then he talked about, I think, four or five books Christians should be out of every Christian bookstore. That was also interesting, uh, by the way. I just commend Elisa Childers' podcast to you. She's fabulous, has great interviews. This one was earlier this year, a few months ago, I think, with Tim Challies. And uh, timchallies.com, is, I think that's his uh, website. He reviews books, and he's reviewed mine. Yeah, I always send him a book because I hope he says something nice about it. But he's a really great source to get, I think, a very, very balanced, accurate uh, assessment, um, theologically especially, of books that are out there. And he's very kind and even-handed and, and gracious, but he's he calls a spade a spade, okay, which is what you want, someone like that. All right, let's go to—that's uh, the flashing light on number five, right? So that would—oh, that's the one flashing green on my my telos. Okay, oh, I got that. Okay. I will push that button for Anthony in Alberta. Is that Alberta, Canada, Anthony? Yeah, you bet. All right. Glad to have you on board. Oh, aren't you yeah. supposed to say you betcha? <laughs> or is that, that's actually Minnesota more, I guess. This not is the short firm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Anthony, what's on your mind? Yeah, hey, um— so from what I can tell, most Bible translations rarely or never use the word relationship. Yeah. And yeah, you know, the Bible doesn't use a phrase such as our relationship with God or, right. or having a relationship with God, right? To right. Describe our connection with him. Right. So I was wondering if uh, you think there's more biblical language mm. we can use to describe how we're You know, to God. Uh, that's a good question. And I have been—I uh, I actually— really don't care for that word relationship, but that's simply because of overuse. Mm -hmm. I do think Scripture uh, describes the um, enterprise between us and God as the, the way it describes it in its various ways can be summed up in the word relationship. The difficulty now, I, I, one of the difficulties is the word is just so overused, it's almost trite. You know, it's like last but not least. You know, it's like, oh, please don't ever say that. It's so dull. And yeah. relationship has become a little bit like that, relationship with God. Now, um, the con I don't know when that word started to be used, but my suspicion is it started to be used during the Jesus movement. And it was being used then. And it was meant—and I used it, you know, and it, what we were trying to do, I think, then, was trying to make a distinction between just hanging out in church and doing the religious thing and having a a deep personal communion with God the way God intended us to have it. All right? So— um and I, I think there are lots of places in Scripture where you can see something like that going on. Just think of David. I read the Psalms at night, and uh, when I go to bed, I'm just working through the Psalms. I'm like 27 or 28 now. And um, the the David shows a, a, a deep 
um, intimacy with God, a deep personal intimacy with God, the way he describes it. And he talks about like, like a child leaning against the breast of his mother calmly and resting there in the safety of that embrace. And that's where, the way he describes his, his huh, relationship huh, with God. Now, I, I mentioned that I, I don't prefer that word because it's just a bit overused and overworked. It's tired, in my view. Yeah. And by the way, other people have used it too. Um, Jews have a relationship with God, some will say, uh, and others may co-opt that language. And so now you're kind of in the same boat linguistically with these other groups who believe something entirely different than we do. Um, and this is why in the story of reality, I don't talk about relationship. I talk about a friendship. And that's just my fresher way of putting it. Now, there's a liability to both words, and I, I address this liability uh, in the story of reality. I say, you know, we can be in, we we have a, we can have a friendship. We were intended to have a friendship with God. I said that doesn't mean we're equals. I have I I can have a friendship with my daughter, but we're not peers. I'm dad, and they're not. But there's still a certain kind of intimacy that's in, entailed there, and I try to clarify that in the story of reality. I think the word relationship in many times will diminish God in uh, in the process. So it drags him down uh, to our level in a certain sense. And of course, God did come down, Emmanuel, God with us, and we have the Incarnation. <clears throat> but, but even so, he's not—I do not think is meant to be our buddy or our sweetheart— and there are books that kind of trade on that, too, you know, that we are in this love, this kind of, what was this, uh, wild at heart. You know, I, I think that I didn't—I've read little parts of that, but not the whole thing. And these are well-intentioned. They do good, and the people are good people. But I just sometimes think the way we characterize this interaction between God and us, this relationship, if you will, sometimes is demeaning to God. It it makes it almost too familiar. It God's less than he, what he is, and when you when you see these characterizations in scripture, you you get these these different aspects of it. There's the intimacy, but there's also like the terror. In fact, I think the psalm that I read last night was all about all these incredibly terrifying things that God did, you know, and 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 even in creation. Which I, I couldn't relate to. I mean, it wasn't registering with me emotionally, uh, how he tears down this and he tear, does this and he destroys such and so. But, you know, when, when, uh, when John, in the book of Revelation, and we see this with a number—a oh, better example is Elijah, Isaiah, chapter 6. And there Isaiah encounters God. And when he sees the glory of God, he is, he is, he's crushed— he falls on his face and he says, "Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I belong to a, belong to an unclean people." So um, I think what I, I don't want to ever characterize um, our um, again. I'm looking for another word too. Our involvement with God in a way that diminishes Him and takes that element away. But I know I've done that. 
and and that's just a trend of our season here in the church does that. We do that in our music, we do that in our worship, we do that in our casual way that we talk about, well, God told me this, and God told me the other thing, and this, that, and the other, and we all get this revelation, and blah, 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 and, you know, I just, oh, my goodness, I, I don't, uh, th- that troubles me a lot. But uh, I remember a brand new Christian was telling me, oh, yeah, and God told me this, and God told me that, and I said, wow, you know, so God actually talks to you? Oh, yeah, we have a really great relationship. You know, like, like he's my buddy. And I, that is not the picture I get of God from Scripture. Um, he, he certainly, God is love, you know, and see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God, and such we are. That's First John, John chapter three, I think. It's a beautiful verse. I love it, and I've taken, I've taken comfort in reflecting on that verse. See how great a love the Father's be that we should be called the sons of God, and such we are. Wow, that's great. At the same time. This scary God, Aslan's not a tame lion. He's not safe. And this is another thing I try to communicate in the story of reality. He's dangerous, and we don't want to lose that. So I I, I don't have a substitute word for you um, that's biblical, because the Bible describes what we are talking about, the relationship, in a, a, a myriad of different ways and with a lot of facets to it. You know, I mean, look at Elijah. I mean, this is the great, the great prophet of God. You know, and uh, after the prophets of Baal incident in First Kings eighteen, then First Kings nineteen, he's all depressed, and he goes all the way down to Sinai, and he's got, you know, and, and there's this. The, here is God, God, and manifesting himself in these different kind of violent ways until he until there's the sound of gentle of gentle blowing, the so-called still small voice, but uh, then God deals with him in a gentle way. So all of these things are part of the character of God, and uh, we, we, we don't want to give him the short shrift. I am concerned, though, about that word relationship for the reason that you mentioned. Yeah, no, it's good to just uh, as much in how people talk about it as the word itself, right? Yeah. You know, I, I actually was concerned on, about this emphasis, and so I did a study, and okay. I wanted to see how, how often was relationship with God the appeal that was made in an evangelistic set circumstance in the New Testament. And so I went to the book of Acts. I figure, well, here's a lot of this historical account of the early church to an evangelism. I'm going to read through the whole book of Acts, and I'm going to isolate every incident of evangelism and see how often they talk about relationship with God. Now, I did that. And uh, you can actually find it on our website, but before I recommend how to find it there, I'd, I encourage people to do it themselves. Just do the walkthrough of the book of Acts. Thirteen times the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, either to individuals or to groups, and it starts out with the Pentecost Sunday. All right? Here's what I discovered. There's not a single time where anybody ever made any reference to a relationship with God. There was no appeal to others based on relationship with God. That was a stunner to me. The closest, the closest that any biblical evangelist comes to any language like that is, I think, Peter says at one point, times of refreshing shall come, right? I don't even know where that is, probably the first third of the book of Acts. And times 
of refreshing will come. Well, that's not relationship, but it's as close as I could come, right? Here's yeah. the, okay. Here's the other stunner, stunner Anthony. Is fasten your seatbelts. Maybe you heard me say this before. Not a single time in the preaching in the book of Acts was even the love of God mentioned. They never uh, advanced the gospel based on the love of God. Indeed, the word love doesn't occur in the entire book. You can look in your concordance, look under love and look in, there are any Acts verses? There are none. Okay, now, of course, the love of God is manifest there. No question about that. But what's interesting is this is not the way the New Testament Christians evangelized, as far as we can tell, given the record that we have. Now, here's the other stunner. I mean, just to keep in mind, um, don't forget that these are the people, Peter, James, John, Paul, you know, etc., etc. These are the people, Stephen, right? These are the people— well, maybe not Stephen in this case. Who is it that went down to Samaria, you know, first, and then then the apostles came down there? Uh, Philip, maybe it was Philip. Yeah, okay. These are the people that were personally trained by Jesus to do evangelism. Every one of them. And none of them talked about the love of God. Whoa. Even Jesus, what did he talk about? He talked about the kingdom is at hand. Now, the Jews misunderstood that. But what he was saying was the rulership of God is at hand. And there was a call back underneath the rulership of God, place of safety, wholeness. And so then it wasn't relationship. What, what is rulership? That's king and subject. Or you could say father and child. Both are characterized there in the text. Pray this way, our father. Okay, so we have these different characterizations. We have ruler-subject. We have master-slave, we have potter-clay, we have father-son. All of those are, are, are used to characterize our, quote-unquote, relationship with God. And so I think we have to hold all of those in, in, in balance with each other if we want to have a balanced friendship <laughs> with God. All right? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's uh, really helpful. Okay, Anthony, it's good talking to you. You bet, and God bless. All right, bye-bye. Always nice to talk to our Canadian friends. Let's take a break, and we got another caller. Oh, when that happened? Oh, we're okay. Let's take a break, and I'll be back in a moment. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality, all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. 
The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Um, I see it, Mike. There, yep, I'm still here. Okay, thank you <laughs> for that. All right, uh, just interacting here with the technology. Um, let's see. Um, 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 um. We've got Jeffrey in Cedarville, Ohio. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Good, good. good. Is there a Christian school in Cedarville, Ohio? There is. I am a student at that school, actually. You, that's where you go to school at? Yes. What yes, is the sir. school? It's called Cedarville University. Oh, well, that's that's uh, creative. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think sure. I've been there before. And um, is it possible that Summit Ministries use Cedarville University as a you know a domicile for their their two week events? I don't know that maybe that's where that's uh, it's possible, but I wouldn't know about yeah. it. Oh, okay. Anyway, are you a student there then? Is that what you said? Yes, sir. What year are no, you? I'm a sophomore. A sophomore. Okay, great. Are you homeschooled? Uh, no, I was uh, raised in a Christian home and went to a private Christian school growing up. Oh, okay. That's why you keep calling me, sir. <laughs> okay, sir. What's up on your mind, Jeff? Yeah. So uh, recently throughout the semester, I've been uh, grappling with some questions in my faith. And one of those that kind of hit me uh, the other day was, uh, what do we as Christians make of people from other religions praying and uh, appearing to receive benefits from their prayer? Um, and what, what caused this was I heard a Jewish man, uh, Ben Shapiro, actually, uh, talk about how, um, like, the only way that he had been able to keep a peace of mind about the situation in Israel uh, was the fact that he was praying every single day. Uh-huh. Um, and so I just wondered, like, how do we as Christians reconcile that with our belief that there's only one way to God, and uh, uh, there there is only one, yeah, only one path to God, and that's Jesus. Sure. I think that, um, well, there's a couple elements here in play. Um, It seems to me really obvious that, theological considerations aside for the moment, people who enter into contemplative moods or practices or prayers, if you will, that these practices have a salutary effect on the people, completely apart from theology. So you can have—in fact, I I see it all the time, you know, you're living a stressful life, spend time praying or meditating or something like that, you know, so they invoke these spiritual disciplines that people can do, because in doing the things, the doing of—excuse me, the doing of them itself has a salutary effect on the mood, irrespective of whether there is a God to hear or not. Okay, so um, somebody like Ben Shapiro, okay, uh, this could easily be the case. And by the way, this is what many 
non-Christians will claim about Christians. Oh, you feel better, you have the peace of God and all that other stuff. Why? Because you're settling yourself, you're calming yourself down, you're doing something that gives you a psychological lift, a benefit, and it's making you feel like someone else is there going to take care of you, and you're relaxing, and someone else is in control. Okay, so so um, that's, that's Marx's religion as the opiate of the people. Okay, it's just a drug, all right? No, I actually think there's truth to that. I don't think that's the whole truth, obviously, but I think there's truth to the fact that you could engage in some kind of spiritual discipline that will have a salutary effect on your frame of mind, irrespective of the theological verities in question, or or that may be involved, all right? So I, I could say, well, you know, you could take an atheist— who, well, that probably wouldn't work. Uh, you could take you, anybody who, you know, prays to God with the mind that God is in control and that he's, he's going to be my helper, that could be a very effective placebo and have a psychological impact on them, okay? <clears throat> so um, that's, that's part of the equation. Now, um, another part of the equation is if he's if he's doing this regarding the God of Israel and believing that the God of Israel is in control because he believes certain things about biblical Hebrew um, Hebrew uh, prophet revelation, that ultimately this God will prevail, well, he's believing something true about the true God, even though he is not a believer in the Messiah. All right? So that's, okay. that's another factor that could be an element in this. That could be making a difference for him. Sure, he could be saying, "Yeah, God's in control," you know, and that helps me because God made promises and He'll protect Israel, but whatever. And so that might be part of it as well. Another element too is that, in my view at least, and this is quantifiable, that God does answer on occasion the the prayers of non-believers. And uh, one example comes to mind, though I will say that there are, in the Psalms especially, I can think of passages, that I've read passages, that's chiding people uh, for praying to a God who they don't honor, and that God's not going to hear their prayers. And uh, in Jeremiah, I'm just, where am I right now? I'm Jer- Here's my Bible right here. I'm in Jeremiah. Oh, it's such a big tome. Jeremiah 19. So I've just read a few chapters where God says, "All right, I'm going to, I'm, you, I'm going to, I almost said kick your butt, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to get you. And you know what? I'm not going to listen to your prayers. I'm not. You can do your sacrifice. I don't care about that. You can pray all you want. You can fast all you want. You can go through all this stuff. I'm not going to listen. I'm done with you, for now. I'm done. I've had enough. All right. Too little. Too late. That's all throughout Jeremiah. Okay. So there are times clearly where the Scripture says where God says, I'm not going to listen to the prayers of unbelievers. And I actually think that's the standard. All right? He who worships God must worship Him in spirit and in truth, Jesus says, John 4. So prayer, you know, that's different than worship, but these are really kin to each other, it seems to me. If you don't go to God in truth, then uh, then you're at a, that's a big liability. All right? Now, of course, Jesus, when He healed, He healed people 
based on, in many cases, he healed, your faith has saved you. I mean, famously, we read about the woman who touched the garment and you know, the power went out of him. He said, who did that? Right. He says, your faith has made you well. Now, obviously, it was her faith that initiated the work and the power of God that was the thing that made her well, not her faith straight up that made her well. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there are other times when there are people who just say um, uh, they believe that Jesus can heal them. All right, uh, and then do you, do you, you know the blind man, for example. Um, if you're willing, I can. You can heal me, and Jesus God. says, "I am willing," and then be healed. Right? Okay. So there's an expression of confidence in his ability to heal. But what about the guy who says, "Do you want to be healed?" Yeah, stand up. Well, there's no statement there about his belief about Jesus. His belief about Jesus came later, because Jesus healed him. So there you have God responding to deep human need, sometimes requested, that doesn't seem to be necessarily connected to them being regenerate believer types. You know, obviously they're not regenerate in the Old Testament, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so yeah. so there are times when God says no, and I think this is characteristic. Most prayers offered to some religious deity do not get answered by the true God. There mm-hmm. are occasions when God, out of mercy, responds to a genuine acts of repentance or to genuine need, and he reaches out and, as an act of mercy, responds. There are other times when um, then God does hear the prayers of of a, of a non-believer to great effect, and the fa- the famous example is that is in Acts chapter ten with a guy called Cornelius. So here you got Cornelius who is offering up alms and prayers to God on a daily basis, right? And then he has a vision, and the visions in the vision of. I'm just kind of going by memory here, but I wonder if the, the exact words would be really helpful here, because I think he says, God has heard your prayers. And this is when, simultaneously, there is another vision that Peter is receiving, instructing him, you know, in a kind of an interesting kind of way, to go to to see Cornelius and preach to Cornelius. So, um Let's just see where I, I'm looking at Acts 10. He was staying with a tanner and he had this. Now, what Peter was praying, and the next day he went, Peter Caesarea. Now, there was a man, the first the beginning of the chapter, a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and had prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw—I think this is interesting—clearly saw. It's not a nudge, nudge, hint, hint. It's another issue. But he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And he says, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch your men to Joppa, etc. Go fetch Peter. Now what's interesting about this— is that this man Cornelius is not saved, to use common lingo. He is, God is sending, having him send for Peter so that he can get saved. And that's what happens in the rest of the chapter. Peter then preaches in the middle of his preachment, and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying, and says, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. We can't withhold water for him for baptism, and so they get baptized. So this is a very clear example where a God-seeker, doing the best he can with what he has, 
still needs the gospel. Okay, he's not saved. So inclusivism is out of here, man. That's this is right. not supported by this notion. Yet he, you know, he's he's still needs to be saved, yet God is responding. He's responding to his <clears throat> almsgiving, he's responding to his prayers, and he responds in a very dramatic way. So uh I think that this is a good example for um the question about what about those who never heard? What about these sincere people, you know? Well, there's lots of people that are sincerely deluded, and Paul speaks to that in Romans 10, the first few verses. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God. You know that passage, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he says, hey, they have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge, all right? <clears throat> so they're lost, even though they have a zeal. But here we've got a, a, a different situation with a guy with zeal, and seems to have a different heart than the de- zealous spiritual leaders of of, of of that Paul is referring to in Romans, and there's he's giving alms. He's doing what he's able to do. This is it's almost like the what the Ethiopian eunuch earlier in the book of Acts. So he's coming to Israel to do his thing as a as a you know as a as a Gentile, doing the best he can and honoring the God of the Jews. But he still needs the gospel, which he gets from Philip while he's reading the book of Isaiah, okay? Mm-hmm. So um, this is what happens here. So I think this is a good example of a case where um, you got a guy who's not regenerate, but he is praying, and the text says God heard his prayers, and then yeah. arranges for the gospel in its fullness to be communicated to him. And... Uh, and that's what happens in the rest of the chapter. So, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I talked with a uh, mentor uh, friend who lives in my dorm last night about this question mm-hmm. a little bit. He pointed mostly to like the physiological benefits that you talked about. And then my question, like my natural like question was like, well, what about like what makes Christianity different? And I think the fact that you. I appreciate that you were able to point to biblical passages to support the idea that God sometimes does answer sure. the prayer of unbelievers. And, and, but, and yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. We just got a minute and a half or two minutes to go, so I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. You reminded me of something I left out, because this is what I said that might be part of what's going on with uh, the gentleman you mentioned. I never can remember his name. What's his name? The Jewish guy? Oh, uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, Yeah. I, I just got a mental block there, Ben. I got a. I don't even know how to remind myself. Okay, uh, that that it could be a, a psychological effect, and that's certainly part of it. And I'm sure that this happens even when Christians pray. But th- yeah. the reason that we don't dismiss even Christians' experience as merely as merely a psychological effect is because we have reasons to be confident that Jesus is who He claimed to be, and we are praying to the Father as Jesus instructed us to pray to him, because now we have separate—that are not subjective elements. We have objective reasons to believe Jesus is the Messiah, that he rose from the dead. And therefore, yeah. when we pray to the Father, we are praying to a Father and reasons to believe that God actually exists and answers prayer. We're not just doing a psychological thing. We are participating um with a God that actually exists. And by the way, this is a completely flip side of this. This is why prayer can be, I think, effective even when we don't feel anything. 
And I've had lots of times like that. I said, look, at, here's your promise, God. I'm praying, right? I'm saying, here it is. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of confidence in my prayer, okay? I'm yeah. not feeling you're close to me. But this is what you ah. say. And I'm praying because here's what it says. It says, you have not because you ask not. And that will never be said of me regarding this issue. So I am asking you based on that. Emotionally, I'm not being carried away. You know, and I'm like into it and just like glowing with the Holy Spirit. I'm just claiming the truth and making a request based on the truth and not based how I'm, I'm, on my feelings. So you could be feeling really great, not be in touch with God. You could be feeling lousy and be speaking to the true God the way the true yeah. God has instructed us to speak to him. So it goes both absolutely. ways. Does that help? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that, the closing comment you made is super helpful, too, because that's been something I've been wrestling with lately is, like, I just haven't been in a place where I felt God's closeness. But yeah. knowing that he still hears me when I cry out to him, uh, absolutely. that's very helpful. This is where proper. I mean— uh, Go to Psalm 13, okay? How long, O Lord, will you desert me forever? That's a great one. There's a bunch of stuff, and it's not a very long one, but I can recite it to you because I've said it myself many times to God. So there you go. Hey, thanks, Jeff, for the call, okay? Thank you. All right, buddy. Uh, That's it for us, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, all right? Bye-bye now.